We're in Colossians chapter 4. And I don't know what's going to happen this morning. I was telling the session this. I have to come into the pulpit in faith in part. Um, it doesn't feel done yet. In my head. In my heart. So we'll see what happens. All right. Colossians. Let's begin in verse 10 and go to the end. First of chapter 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heriopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make our love increase. Your Son has told us that if we love him, we will obey him. And so make our love for you and for Jesus grow that we will also grow in our obedience. Make our love for one another overflow, that we would forgive, serve, and encourage one another. Strengthen our hearts that we might be blameless and holy in your sight when Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Purify us so that we will be holy as you are holy. Mold us that we will share the likeness of you, our Heavenly Father, and of our brother, your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's always exciting to be getting ready to graduate from seminary. You've prepared, you've been equipped, and now you have to find a job. Easier said than done in any economy, by the way. And so there I was in 1994, kind of scrambling like all people. I had uh, finally cut my hair. I, my senior, my last year of seminary, I let it grow long. So figuring this is the last time my hair can be long, and my wife is glad it's not long. Okay. And I had one really good opportunity. At that point in time, theologically, I was Calvinistic. I was covenantal, but I was still Baptistic. And there was an independent Calvinistic Baptist church north of Phoenix that was looking for a youth pastor. 
And what was exciting about it was that uh, as I filled out the information that they wanted and answered the questions they had asked of me, they weren't just looking for a guy to play games and maybe have a Bible study. They were looking for someone who was really geared the way I thought in a lot of ways, you know, worldview thinking and trying to communicate that to teenagers. And uh, I'd never really sensed myself called to do youth ministry, but one of the bonuses was they were planning on building a school to equip people for ministry. And so the carrot that was dangling there for me anyway was teaching theology. That's really what I really wanted to do was teach some theology. And I don't know how it all happened, and I don't know why it all happened, but at the last second, I pulled out. It may have been the, the sandstorm that was happening during one of the interview phone calls. It may have been the talk of scorpions and snakes. I don't know what exactly. But I freaked. And I cut things off. They didn't cut them off. I did. Now, I'm not the only one who's done something like that. Biblically, we have Moses called to deliver God's people, and he, on his own, tries to do it and then fails miserably and runs off and spends 40 years in a desert. We read a little bit about Jonah, who also failed. He heard the call of God, ran away, and got swallowed by a great big fish or whale. Not sure which, since they didn't use those categories like we do back then, but it did happen. Not the only one who's failed. That's mostly what I want to talk to you about today. Failure. When we fail, and what happens next? What do we do, but more importantly, what does God do? Our big idea this morning is that Christ builds ministry teams that reflect gospel sufficiency. And that's going to be kind of in between all of the lines that we've read this morning from Colossians chapter 4. The first line that I want to read about or talk about is not so much connected with failure, but part of how God builds these ministry teams. Then we'll get into the failure stuff. So you have a break first. Through the gospel, Jew and Gentile labor together. Or perhaps I should say, through the gospel, people who were once at odds with one another labor for the gospel. Because that's really the idea that's here. These two groups of people who were hostile towards one another are brought together to work together for the sake of something much greater. Paul talks about these men, the, the, I'm going to talk about the first three in particular this morning, but he says that they are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. The shift has focused from those who are carrying the letter to the Colossians, that we talked, the, the men we talked about last week, and now he's focusing on the men who are working with him in Rome. In other words, his ministry team. To make the gospel known here is basically seen as working for the kingdom of God. You're, you're working to expand his rule over people in space and in time. And so the proclamation of the message of, of Christ obedient, Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead on the third day, Christ ascended into the heavens where he seats at the, God, at the right hand of God the Father, all of that is meant to be not just gospel work, but kingdom work. We're 
calling people to come under the reign of Jesus Christ that they might find wholeness and spiritual health. And so these people are working with Paul for this very reason. And he says at the very beginning, greetings, particularly from Aristarchus. But this word greetings that is found there is not just, hi, how's it going? But it's warmer than that. It's more intense than that. It has this idea of a warm welcome, sort of enfolding someone in your arms. We might say hugs. My grandmother used to write X's and O's at the bottom of the cards that she would send me. I'm sure your grandmother did the same thing. And if you're a grandparent, you probably do the very same thing. Essentially, this is hugs and kisses which is sort of strange because these men did not know these Colossians. They had heard about them from Epaphras, who's part of the ministry team right there, but most of them don't know them personally, and yet there's a, they're, they're, Paul is communicating a great depth of warmth and love and commitment towards these people that they have never met. I've sort of experienced that. When I was brand new here, I went on vacation. But before I went on vacation, there was a PCA pastor in upstate New York named Kip who was um, in a bike accident and paralyzed. And I knew upstate New York, they're going to have a hard time finding pulpit supply. And so I, I just dashed them an email. Hey, you don't know me. I'm a PCA pastor from Arizona. I'm going to be on vacation. If you need help, let me know. So it was nice to come and to, to meet these people and, and to minister to them and their grief and sorrow and sadness and everything else that was kind of going on. A warmth for people I had never met that only comes from Christ himself, only can be instilled by the Spirit itself. Himself, And so the same spirit, the same Christ had instilled this in Aristarchus and in John and in Jesus who is called Justice. Paul starts with these three men. The last three are Jews that also have Greek names. And that might be tied to the idea that those languages are very different. Hebrew is much more guttural and we don't talk like little clicks and stuff, you know, but if you speak Hebrew, you do. So it's just a sort of a name that they would use when they were ministering with Greek people, and we see that with Paul himself. Among the Jews, he was known as Saul, but when he moves in his ministry to be primarily about the Gentiles, he's called Paul. And so John, that's his given name, but usually when he's working in and among Gentiles, he is called Mark. Same thing with this man, Jesus, which is the Greek form of Joshua, he was called amongst them justice. Let's start with Aristarchus. Aristarchus is an interesting person. He first shows up in Acts chapter 19. Not a good place if you're Aristarchus, because Acts chapter 19 is the riot in Ephesus. This is his first mention. And he is one of the two men that is grabbed by the rioting people and has dragged into the theater. He was among Paul's ministry team at that point in time from Thessalonica. 
converted under the ministry of Paul while he was there and then kind of brought along and ministered to, and he begins to minister. And here he finds himself in the middle of a riot in which he is probably beaten, probably severely. He learned that ministry sometimes has a price to it. But Aristarchus didn't give up. Aristarchus is mentioned among the people that took the offering from the Macedonians that is seen in Second Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. He's one of the people that travels with Paul to bring that to the Jews in Jerusalem. So he's still engaging in ministry in spite of the hardship. Not only that, but when Paul gets arrested, he's among the people who goes with Paul, serves with him along the way, and even in Rome. And so we see Aristarchus going from Thessalonica to Ephesus to Jerusalem to Rome in the book of Acts. We see a faithful man who is being used of God and is giving himself in that despite the obstacles that he experiences. Riots, prison, a lot of us would say, have a nice day. And yet he engages. Paul further clarifies about these three men. He says about these three men that they are the only men of the circumcision that were laboring with him in Rome. Now, usually when Paul uses that phrase, Men of the circumcision, like in Galatians, it's a very negative thing because they're demanding that all Gentiles be circumcised to be saved. He's not using it in that negative sense in this particular place. He just basically means, and I don't know why he didn't say it, but they were Jews. In other words, they're the only Jews on his team, his ministry team. We're going to see that uh, Paul lists six people, three Jew. Three Gentile. But notice that. That they're together. They're working together for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. And so what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3, and verse 11 particularly, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That was not just a slogan. That was a reality of Paul's ministry. He put it into practice. He lived by what he preached. And it's evidenced here at the end of Paul's letter. And so there's sort of that little, see, it's not impossible, brothers and sisters, It's possible to live this way in the power of the Spirit, in the power of the new man that is in Christ. That the hostility between Jew and Gentile indeed has been overcome by Jesus. It's been laid aside. He bore it on His own body at the cross as we see in Ephesians chapter 2. And this ministry team is living proof of it. Their inbred hostility toward one another was overcome by Christ and by Him crucified. Now, we have a ministry team here. I don't think there was much inbred hostility. I don't know. We have one guy from California. He might not like people from New England. I'm not sure. Randy and I have never sat down and talked about it. But I know that there are, you know, we've got a Canadian. We're not really sure about those Canadians, and they're not really sure about us all the time, you know. 
So I don't know if there's some inbred hostility there. But you see, we also have very different personalities, very different ways of going about things, different ways of communicating. And so we need the gospel just as much as Paul's team did. Because misunderstandings can happen and hostility can break out. Not inbred hostility, but produced hostility. And so you're, we as officers need to continually remember how the gospel overcomes our personal differences as well as our sin towards one another. Paul continues about this and he says that they are a comfort to me. And we talked about a word that says comfort last week. This is a different word. This is not that idea of, of bringing strength, uh, but this is more to provide consolation, to provide relief. And so Paul is finding consolation and relief from these men. They are alongside him to console Paul, partially, I imagine, because of the fact that he's in imprisonment and life is difficult. And so they sympathize with Paul. They also empathize with Paul. They're there for Paul. This is the first time, I think, when he talks about, one of the only times when he talks about his imprisonment, where there's a, there's a hint of perhaps weakness and fear. I mean, Philippians, he's, he's giving no sense that he's having a hard time in prison. This is the first little glimpse that perhaps it's not always easy for Paul in his imprisonment. But these men console him in the midst of it. And so ministry teams have this common bond in Christ that is sufficient to overcome barriers that may exist. Let's move on and spend most of our time talking with Mark, about Mark, rather. First off, Christ is sufficient to restore those who fail. John, who was called Mark, is a surprising addition or member of this ministry team if we look at the history that is found in Acts. When I was thinking about this, my mind went to Johnny Damon. Those of you who don't know who Johnny Damon is, he was the center fielder for the Boston Red Sox when they overcame the Yankees in 2004 and won the World Series. And He had really long hair and everyone thought he looked like Jesus, which he didn't. Okay, But nonetheless, <clears throat> he was one of the stars of the team, the, the, the group of guys that, that was called the Idiots that, war, that were so warm in the hearts of most Red Sox fans. And then Johnny Damon did the unthinkable. He signed a contract with the Yankees. This is sort of surprising like that. Okay, When we look at, at Mark's history with Paul, it seems as surprising as that. We first find Mark at the end of the Gospel of Mark. He's most likely this youth that we read about in uh, chapter 14, verse 51. And a young man followed him, Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. So he had gotten up at night, followed. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's probably Mark trying to be apprehended by the officials who are carrying away Jesus. They grab his cloak, he pulls free, and he runs off into the night, and they decide, we've had enough of him. Okay, 
We see more information about him in Acts chapter 12. This is when the the gift comes from the church in Antioch to the, the Jews in the church in Jerusalem because of the impending famine that was prophesied. And what happens while Paul and Barnabas are there is, of course, that Peter gets arrested and the people come to pray. And where they go to pray is the house of Mary, who is the mother of John. Now we know as well from... Colossians here, that Barnabas is his uncle. Oh, sorry, his cousin. So, they're related. So now we get some of, a picture of some of the family relationships. He's part of that the church that's in Jerusalem, and what happens is that when Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, they take Mark. He decides, I guess, to be, he was a young man looking for adventure. He decides to go and be with them. And furthermore, when Paul and Barnabas are set aside and called by the, by God and then the church to go out on the first missionary journey, they bring Mark. And it's what happens next that broke Paul's heart. Paul probably feeling the effects of his illness. Remember, he talked about how it was because of his illness that he preached to the Galatians. There's, there's, from where Mark left to where the Galatians are, where they had to go through the mountain ranges, and for some reason, Mark decided to bail. We're not sure why he bailed. But he turned back and didn't go just to Syria, Antioch. He went back to Jerusalem. Luke does not tell us why he bailed. It could have been fear. He could have merely been homesick. Not sure. He, you know, went back to Jerusalem after all. Could have been physical weakness in the sight of the mountains and everything that was there. It could have been intimidation by the response so far. There had been some hostility towards the gospel. We're not sure, but we do know this. He turned back. Mark was young. Mark was immature in his faith, perhaps, even though he knew Jesus personally from his earthly ministry. Was probably one of those who was a witness to the resurrection. But this we know, though he trusted Christ for his salvation, he lacked some measure of courage to persevere in the face of obstacles. That was me. I was there. A young man hadn't, had sort of engaged in ministry in the local church. Now I'm trained, and all of a sudden the reality settled in as I'm talking with these people in Arizona of all places, mind you. Oh my goodness, my plan was to go back to New England. I'm going to go somewhere I don't know anybody. I'm going to miss the friends that I've made here in Florida. All kinds of things went through my mind. I'm not sure exactly what tipped the scales, but I lacked the courage to see it through. Like Mark, I ran. Although, I didn't go anywhere, physically. But my immaturity in Christ got the better of me. But what happens when we fail? Those of us who watch the Batman trilogy were familiar with the phrase, we fall so that we learn to get up. And God does that too. 
He brings us to circumstances in which we fail so that we learn to get back up by his grace and continue on. Life is filled with failure. We don't learn except by failure. How did you learn how to do math? You got a lot of problems wrong. How did you learn how to, to write and speak in English? You got a lot of things wrong and got corrected. Living the Christian life is going to be filled with failure. Ministry is going to be filled with failure. The question is, what do you do with that failure? Sometimes that failure is met by rejection by others. And we're going to see that that happens in Mark's life. It can also be met with self-pity. We get filled with with regret and we, we get filled with greater fear. We become paralyzed. We don't move forward. We kind of get stuck in our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. We can get just plain stuck. Moses was stuck. Did you ever think it took 40 years of Moses out in the desert of Midian tending to sheep before finally God said, Hey, Moses, time to go. Moses, I imagine, was very struck. And then when God said it's time to go, Moses found lots of excuses not to go. Until finally God said, You're going. <laughs> That's it. I will be with you. Trust me. Let's fast forward, so to speak. Over a decade, a decade after he bails on that first missionary journey, we see that Mark is engaging in ministry again, and he's reliable. I'm reminded of the VeggieTales Jonah movie, since we brought up Jonah. Or I brought up Jonah. And that big song and dance number in the belly of the whale. You know, the God of second chances. It's true. What did, we, what did we see in the real story of Jonah? He's there in the belly of the whale, and he repents. He realizes that his disobedience was a problem, that it wasn't God's command that was the problem, it was that he himself was the problem, and he repents, and so the whale or the fish spits him up onto dry land. And then the call comes to him again, and this time he goes. God did not consign him to failure and misery. God brought him to repentance and then called him back to ministry. Similar thing with Mark. He was not forgotten by God, but God gave him a second chance. In fact, we see here in this letter that Paul is, in, is partner with him, and Paul left instructions, and that's, that Greek word can also be translated commands. That's the Greek word that's translated, you know, the Ten Commandments, commands, for them to, for the Colossians to welcome him. In other words, Paul trusted him enough not just to be by him as an underling, but to be sent out on his own to do positive ministry. He was restored to gospel ministry. Not only Paul, but we see Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. She who is in Babylon, which most likely means Rome, 
who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So the church in Rome sends greetings to whomever he's writing this letter to. And so does Mark, my son. Not his genetic son, but his son in the faith. At some point, Mark had become connected with Peter in Rome. In fact, essentially what the gospel of Mark is, is Peter's gospel to the people in Rome. It bears the marks of a gospel that would be suited for the culture of Rome. Probably largely taken from Paul, uh, Peter's recollections of his, the earthly ministry of Jesus, some of which Paul, Mark had seen with his own eyes, but maybe not had a, the, quite the insight as a younger man that Peter did. And so failure is not necessarily the end of the story. It, it's a chapter in our stories, but it's not the end of our stories. God does not give up on his people, though his people often give up. Those who fail can experience the grace of God to restore them to useful service. Can you think of anything more useful than writing one of the four Gospels? You're one of four people in history to do something. I think that's kind of useful. But it began with his failure. Do you see? Thirdly, Christ is sufficient to mend broken relationships. It's not just that Mark failed, but we see that somehow when, when uh, Paul and Barnabas go to the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, they, they reconnect with Mark. They come back to uh, Syria, and they decide that they want to go back and, and encourage the churches that they planted on the first missionary journey, and then there's the elephant in the room. Mark. What to do about Mark? Barnabas wants to bring Mark. Paul doesn't. We're told in the scriptures that there was a sharp disagreement between these two men. Sharp enough that they went their separate ways. We do not know whatever happened to the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. The scripture is silent. But they went their separate, separate ways and destroyed a, what had been a very fruitful partnership. I mean, think of the role that Barnabas played in Paul's life. He's the one in Jerusalem who welcomed him. He's the one who brought him to the, to the apostles and said, he's truly converted. Let's work with him. He's the one who left Antioch to find Paul in Tarsus where we're not sure what he was doing, but he brings him into the, the ministry there in Antioch. He's the one who's responsible from an earthly perspective of Paul's incredible ministry in the known world. And they split over Mark. Don't you wonder if maybe Paul blamed Mark for this? I don't know. It's silent. But I know I would. I know I can be that petty. And so there was this huge breach in this relationship that takes place. 
But how do we get from the argument in A.D. 49 to this mended, fruitful relationship that we see approximately A.D. 60-61? What happens in that decade? Barnabas. Once again, Jesus uses the son of encouragement to encourage a saint who's been brought low by failure. Once again, he uses Barnabas, the same Barnabas who restored Paul to restore Mark to ministry. I can't help but think about the Barnabases in my life, about the men who came along beside me after my failures, the men who still believed that God hadn't given up on me. I think of Chris Bacari, for instance, leader of the uh, Orangewood Singles Ministry, asked me to lead the mission trip in 1997. My roommate, who was about to get married, had led the previous two trips, and Chris himself was going to graduate, so he didn't want to lead it, so he thought, you know what, Steve? And I can remember still, this will look good on your resume. He still had a vision for me in gospel ministry. I think of Tom Shoker, church planter, Lakeland, Florida, tiny little church on the wrong side of the tracks, which meant the highway in Lakeland, Florida, but who invested in me. This uh, probably at that point odd-looking church church intern who helped prepare me for the pastorate. Years later, after Cornerstone had closed and life was very difficult, it was my friend, Danny who was an associate at another church that didn't have a pastor and fought for me. Fought for me to become the, the stated supply of that church where he was pastoring, uh, you know, as an associate. Keeping me engaged, not just with ministry, but as a friend watching over my heart. That's a lot of what Barnabas did. He took Mark with him as he went to Cyprus He showed him the ropes. He loved him. He encouraged him. He gave him opportunities. He let him fail, and he helped him succeed. That's what Barnabas did. And after all of those years under Barnabas' ministry, and then he finds himself in Rome, Paul recognizes God's grace at work in Mark's ministry in Rome and welcomed him. The man that he didn't want to be near ministry-wise, he now enfolds in his arms, shakes hands with him and says, that was then, this is now. I recognize the grace of God in your life and I'm your partner in ministry. So much so that in 2 Timothy 4 we read this, Luke alone is with me. Everyone else had sort of abandoned Paul. Get Mark. Bring him with you. So he wants two people. He wants Timothy. He wants Mark. Why does he want Mark? For he is very useful for me in my ministry. 
What a turnaround by the grace of God that was produced through repentance. A turnaround in his usefulness and a turnaround in his relationships. He kind of moved beyond the self-pity. He had kind of moved beyond the regrets of everything and was very useful to God and to Paul and to Peter and to the church. Paul, having experienced God's grace in his own life, now welcomes Mark in. Their partners, their friends, they're restored to one another. It's beautiful what the gospel produces. Which leads me to ask the questions. Do you see someone who needs a Barnabas? Do you know someone who's failed? Who feels that sense of regret and shame for their failures and that happened? who needs someone to come alongside them and say, you know what, the game's not over. Life's not over. Let's walk together for a while. Or perhaps you're someone who needs a Barnabas. You've been squashed by life lately, and you need a son of encouragement to come and walk beside you. And are you willing to admit that and receive that? Sometimes our pride gets in the way and we don't want people's help. We can do it alone, we think. When God God says you need someone to come alongside you, to console and strengthen you. So we all fail. As Bruce Wayne's dad said, we fall so that we can learn to get back up again. Sometimes, unfortunately, we can become crippled by our failure. It can haunt us with regrets. It can haunt us with the broken relationships that flow out of it. We have to believe and to know that Christ himself is sufficient, that what he has done is sufficient to reach down into whatever pit we have thrown ourselves in and to lift us up out of it that he can make us useful for his service despite our failings, our frailty, that he can mend those broken relationships that we have experienced, and to know that he often uses more mature Christians to come alongside us. They're a gift of his grace and his mercy and kindness and goodness to invite us to share in their work. And so... Are we embracing this grace of God? Or are we resisting it? Let us pray. Father, I suspect that many of us can identify with Mark. And a lot of us can also identify with Paul. Having felt betrayed by another. It's easy for us to harden our hearts to close up. Father, I ask that your word this morning would be at work among us, helping us to identify where we need help or where we need to help. That as a church, 
uh, we can be a bunch of Barnabases to one another. So that you can build a ministry team that is far bigger than the officers of this church. It already is bigger. But I long to see it bigger still. And only you can produce that. Overcoming those hindrances that we inevitably seem to produce in ourselves. So have mercy upon us because of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.